This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The word sharper than any two-edged sword. And it cuts deep into my heart. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to a cold, rainy Wednesday afternoon. Probably nothing better to do than sit by the radio and listen to the Word to Stand On for Life. Thank you for tuning in. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. And what we really want is for you just to be careful out there and enjoy the next hour with us. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. 340-9585. You can also call us toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. That's 630-5757. You can email your questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com. You can also use our free Calvary Chapel mobile app and uh, send your questions in that way. Uh, If you're driving in your car on this cold, wet day, be very, very careful. The safest way to call is use the free KSLR mobile app. One more time, 340-9585. Had a thrill this afternoon. Um, um, Let me share it with you because many of you prayed for this baby for such a long, long time. Uh, Pastor Samuel, who we sent to Calvary Chapel in South Anchorage, Alaska, was uh, stopped by today. He's home visiting and and uh, got to see the baby that so many of you prayed for. They tried so many years to get pregnant and just finally gave up. And then God began to answer prayers, and uh, little EJ was here. And the thrill that I got personally was I went out to him, um, you know, all the people around him, and I just kind of got in his face and said, uh, started talking. He recognized my voice, and as soon as he did, he smiled so big, and then he just started talking back to me. And for the whole next few minutes, he was just talking as much as I was talking. And I just thought, oh, Jesus, you're so good. You know, it's always hard as a pastor when you send people that you love away. Uh, we didn't want Samuel and Megan to go, but this is what the call of God was on their lives. And, and they've been doing a great job in uh, Anchorage. Um, but it's sure great to see them again. So uh, I would appreciate if you keep uh, Pastor Samuel Vargas and his wife Megan and baby EJ in your prayers from time to time as the Lord brings them to heart and mind. And um, just pray that God would bless them and use them uh, for his glory in Anchorage. Uh, One other thing that I need to talk about before we get started today, it's uh, obvious, I think everybody has heard about uh, Billy Graham moving Billy Graham once said that a day will come when you will read reports of Billy dying, and he said, but when you hear that report, it's not true. Billy has just moved to a better neighborhood, and he is receiving today the goal of his salvation. Um, 
a giant um, that's putting it mildly, almost a hundred years old. And um, oh, how the Lord used him and what a great light he was for the world that we live in, not just here in the United States, but all over the world. You know what I appreciate the most about Billy Graham? And there's a lot of things. I appreciate his integrity. I appreciate the fact that that uh, he never compromised the gospel. Uh, I really appreciate the fact that he dealt with his own uh, challenges to his faith. Uh, when uh, contemporaries of his were deserting the faith, uh, taking sort of a liberal stance, uh, even becoming non-believers, uh, Billy just wrestled with the Lord. I have to believe. And he finally came to the conclusion that since this is God's word, he is going to believe it. He's going to do it without doubt. And that's when his ministry really took off. Those of you who listen to this program on a regular basis know I've told you many, many times that was the changing uh, point in my life when I decided for sure in my heart and mind that the Bible was the literal word of God, that it could be depended on in matters of doctrine and truth. It was at that point I, I've never had another question about my salvation. I've never had another question about uh, whether or not the Bible is what we depend on. Um, and it just changed my life. So I appreciate that about Billy as well. But for me personally, the thing that I enjoy and appreciate the most about Billy Graham is that he was stubborn. You know, Billy Graham could have had or done anything he wanted. He was begged to run for political office. He was even begged to run for the presidency of the United States. He was encouraged to start a college. There were so many things that he could have done. And yet he stuck to the one thing God had called him to do. Just one thing. And that's a great lesson for all of us. It really is a great lesson for all of us. My pastor, before he went to be with Jesus, Chuck Smith, used to tell a story at our pastor's conferences about the first time that he met Billy Graham. Uh, he was so nervous. He was he had this meeting set up, and he was so nervous and excited to meet this man that God has used. I mean, Billy spoke to more than 200 million people in his lifetime. Think about that. And we're not talking about people online. This isn't YouTube hits. These are people that he spoke to in person. And Pastor Chuck was really, really nervous about meeting him. And finally, when he got to that place and he introduced himself, he said, um, um, Billy, my name is... And Billy cut him off. He said, Chuck Smith, do you know I've been wanting to meet you for years and years and years? I am so excited. And it just, the humility of this man was a wonderful, wonderful thing to behold. So while earth is a little bit poorer today, heaven is a whole lot richer. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. And not only did Billy Graham get what he always wanted today, our Jesus got what he wanted today as well. I never got to meet Billy Graham personally. 
Uh, we were involved, as many churches in San Antonio were, uh, with the Billy Graham Crusades when he came to San Antonio. Uh, I have had extensive dealings with Franklin Graham and um, met several times with other members of the family. Um, I would have liked to have met Billy. The men that I know who have met him were always amazed at how simple and humble he really was. But I guess that's what it takes for a man to be used by the Lord. Well done, Billy. I'm sure you've already heard that today. But thank you for the example you set. Thank you for raising the bar so high. Truly a giant. Not a giant from heaven's perspective but a giant among men, a giant of our faith, a man who did exactly and only what God told him to do. Because it's Wednesday, we have our Bible study here tonight. I know it's a cold night, but you can watch it online if you'd like to, calvaryessay.com, 2 Samuel, we're at the second half of chapter 5, a really important study. Great, great, great application for us. And, of course, that means tomorrow's Thursday, and Paula will be live in studio with me on the date day edition of the program. Uh, That's tomorrow, ladies. It's a day that we set aside especially for you. So if you need any encouragement at all, Paula will be here tomorrow. 340-9585. Let's go to our first question. It's from our email inbox anonymously. Um... He or she says, some may only study King James Version, understanding Isaiah 45, 7 to be that God creates evil. Contextually throughout God's word, obviously that's not true. And then in parentheses, this writer says, in him there's no darkness, God is love, God is holy, evil cannot be in his presence, etc. With so much progressive evil in the world, this thought that God has created evil instead of actually only allowing it in his patience can be quite damaging to individual faith. Could you please expand and balance God's character in relation to Isaiah 45? Thank you, Anonymous. Anonymous, thank you uh, for the question. Let me share with you. Let me read the audience. I'm going to read it from the Living Bible. I think it gets the translation um, uh, correctly. Uh, in Isaiah 45, God is is uh, speaking through the prophet. He says in the verse before, um, the point is to know that the whole world will know that there is no other God. He is Jehovah and there is no one else. I alone am God. Here's the verse. I form the light and make the dark. I send good times and bad. I, Jehovah, am he who does these things. Now, this is uh, anonymous, kind of what Job learned about God. You know, Job had heard of God. Job had a great uh, relationship as far as um, as far as he could, of course, and without the Holy Spirit. It's nothing like we enjoy. But, but God bragged about Job. When Job saw God and heard him, it changed everything. Bible says in the New Testament, and the New Testament often often gives us light on difficult Old Testament passages, that not only is God light and there's no darkness in him at all, but no one can say when he's tempted that he's been tempted by God. So this isn't even so much a matter of his permissive will. Now, certainly God could stop every bad thing from happening. He could immediately stop all evil, but he's chosen not to to do that yet. He's going to do that and that time we believe is coming very quickly. But the idea here is he is the one 
who makes everything that is. Uh, the good times and bad, those are times that come to everybody who lives on the world, who's ever lived in this world. Uh, he does these things, though he could stop them. He does these things, and he gives us all a chance to recover from our lost condition of sin. So whenever somebody reads something, and this is the thing you have to understand, I bring evil, or I create disaster. When you read those kind of things, you first, and if you're going to be an honest um, uh, student, your first hermeneutic is, well, what can we know this cannot mean? And we know it cannot mean, given the New Testament light we have, that God causes evil or creates evil. Evil was created with the fall of man in this world. Evil was created in the heavens with the fall of Lucifer and a third of the angels. So those are the things that just happen. There's nothing that's going to stop those things from happening until Jesus returns. And I want to repeat this for, for clarity, uh, Anonymous. A day is coming, and we believe soon, when God is going to stop all of it. Jesus talks about it in the Olivet Discourse. He's going to set his feet on the Mount of Olives. The Mount of Olives is going to crack beneath his feet. He is going to destroy his enemies, and he is going to establish a righteous rule, his, his righteous kingdom. And then the world will have no choice but to serve under this potentate, this wonderful, wonderful dictator. Until, of course, again when Satan is loosed for a short time. And then this world will be over as we know it. A new heaven and a new earth will be created and we will be with the Lord forever and ever. That's what God does. That's what he creates. So Anonymous, I hope that helps answer the question. Those who read it, that God causes these things, uh, really don't know the nature and the character of God even a little bit. So Anonymous, thank you. I hope that helps. Here's a question from Sweeney, and I hope I've got that right. It doesn't seem right, but that's what I've got on my page. Here she says, what does God really want from us? It seems like I can never make him happy. Sweeney, God wants one thing and one thing only. He wants you. He just wants you. I want you to think about this for a moment. If you think God isn't happy with you, if you're a believer, if you're a born-again Christian, I want you to know that the Bible declares that God is thrilled with you already. That Jesus died, he gave us his perfection, and all we did by believing in is get adopted in the family of God. Now, the problem is that there is an enemy who wants to make us feel guilty. There are people there who want to diminish our relationship with God into a set of rules, things we can do or cannot do. When in reality, the only thing God wants from you, Sweeney, is you. He wants your heart. He wants you to live with him. He wants you to live for him. He wants you to know the joy that he's planned for your life. It doesn't mean life is going to be easy. But it means what David wrote in the fullness, or, or I'm sorry, in his presence is the fullness of joy. And whenever we approach God, like we've got to do stuff for him, or God, you've got to make me do this, or I don't want to do this, we're missing the whole point. Because what God has done for us, I'm going to be talking a little bit about some of these things tonight, you know, as we studied the life of David, who, by the way, did not have the Holy Spirit. 
the Holy Spirit would come upon David, of course. But he didn't have the relationship, the intimacy that we have. And yet, everything that we're going to talk about in Second Samuel chapter 5 tonight is an Old Testament picture of the reality that we live every day. Jesus wants nothing from you except you. He doesn't need your stuff. He doesn't need your your talents. He doesn't need you to suffer for him, to sacrifice for him. He wants your heart. And since this is going to be a marriage in heaven, me and Jesus, we're going to be married. Well, we need to start walking out that marriage here on earth. And the way we do that is to sacrifice everything for our marriage partner, who, of course, is Jesus. So what do we do? We just say yes. We just say yes. There's a place in tonight's Bible study where David inquires of the Lord and says, uh, shall I go out against the Philistines? Will you give them into my hand? And God says, yes. And the next two words, so David went. Three words, so David went. So Sweeney, that's all God wants. He wants you to go when he tells you to go. He wants you to sit and be still when he tells you to sit and be still. He wants to share more and more and more of who he is with you every single day. And if you are relegating this relationship, this wonderful relationship that we have with our Jesus to a a list of things that you can do or cannot do, you're missing the whole point. Sweeney, this isn't about you trying to be good. This is about you being with Jesus. And that's all he wants. I think sometimes, Sweeney, and I don't know you, so I don't know if this is applicable for you, but I know it is for a whole bunch of people. We think that we have to keep proving ourselves to God. And we think God keeps taking stuff that we want in this world away from us to test us and see if we pass the test. The only things he takes from you are those things that are in between you and him. Remember the rich young ruler, sell everything you have and give it to the poor and follow me and the rich young ruler went away very sad because he had great wealth well the money this isn't about people giving their money away this was about this one man whose God really was money the money controlled him rather than controlling the money the rich young ruler was a slave to his stuff and all Jesus wanted was him And so he took away that which stood between him and this rich young ruler, and the rich young ruler made the wrong choice. So the same thing is true with you, Sweeney, whether it's a relationship that is ungodly, whether it's holding on to unforgiveness, maybe there's sin in your life, anger, and you're not ready to give it up. Jesus is simply saying, Sweeney, sell it all, give it all away, follow me. And if you'll do that, then what will happen is that you will find out just how beautifully sweet living with Jesus really is. I hope that answers your question. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Um, here's a question that just was called into the studio. Ben wants to know, why do some Christians believe the King James Bible is the only one that should be used to teach from? 
How should I respond to Christians who believe this? Ben, uh, and, and I want to say this as kindly as I can, but the reason that people believe that is because uh, some fundamentalist, and normally I'm a big-time fundamentalist backer, but some King James fundamentalist, I want to be a Jesus fundamentalist, um, says this is the only authorized version of God's Word, and anything else is from the devil, and then without it, checking it out on their own, uh, that's what they are told, so that's what they believe. Uh, common sense tells you differently. Um, the King James Bible is a wonderful Bible. Uh, it's the Bible that I had when I first got saved. Uh, it's the Bible that still comes out of my mouth because it's so memorable. Uh, when I have vision problems, I've explained that on this show before, uh, when I'm unable to see my notes clearly, um, my mind automatically reverts back to King James. So I love the King James Version of the Bible. Um, but to suggest even for a moment that it is the only authorized version is foolish, it's childish, it's actually ignorant. I mean, the King James Bible originated in 1611. Does that mean, would, would those Christians contend that there was no word of God before 1611? Would they contend that all the foreign translations of the Bible, because they're not King James, are not authentic or genuine? You see, it's a foolish and an ignorant perspective to take. And it makes no sense. And yet there are always those who kind of tend toward conspiracy theories. They know they're trying to, all the new versions are trying to take the deity away from Jesus and they're trying to change words. And uh, it's just simply not true. I will say this, Ben, that the uh, King James Version of the Bible and the New King James Version of the Bible uh, are, are translations of the majority manuscripts, the Texas Receptus, the um, NASB, the NIV, the um, um, ESV, and, and others are are taken from later manuscripts, uh, manuscripts that were discovered later but were, are believed to be older, um, the Alexandrian manuscripts, and they're both, or they're all, I should say, faithful translations of the manuscripts they're translating, but there are some differences in those sets of manuscripts. Now, we don't have the original autographs, to be sure, but we have un believable quantities of evidence, manuscript pieces and parts that we can put it all together and with, with really 100% confidence we can know what our Bible said. For those who would suggest that the newer translations try to remove Jesus' deity, they removed some of the references, they didn't at all, they're just translating a different manuscript. And by the way, whenever you see in any of the other transcripts, when it doesn't include a verse or doesn't include a portion of it, they will have it at the bottom, and they will say, some manuscripts say, so they're not trying to hide it at all. They're just giving us the whole picture. Uh, again, the King James, New King James are great translations. I am impartial to the King James Version. Um, but language changes we need to be willing to change with it. So I hope that answers your question, Ben. It's really, really sad. Uh, it shows the, the lack of scholarship, the lack of honest intellectual scholarship. Um, 
when people teach this, and they cause people to stumble. And the ones that always are stumbled are the immature Christians who really don't have a grasp on what the Word of God really is. I will say this, that without exception, the preachers that I know and have heard that proclaim the King James Version is the only authorized version of the Bible are really, really, really bad Bible expositors. And the reason I would suggest is that they use the same lack of logic and inability to interpret accurately uh, the Word of God as they do uh, in comparing the King James Version with other versions of the Bible. Uh, It's a great translation. I want to say that again so nobody misunderstands. But it is not the only authorized version of the Bible, and there has been a lot of damage uh, that has been done over the years as a result. So I hope that answers your question. 340-9585. I think we're inside about a minute. or just about to get a minute, so uh, I won't take another question. Uh, but here's our phone numbers for your live calls. We'd love to have you call on the second half of the program today. 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. That's 630-5757. Let me see. I had something on my mind. See, when you get old, this is the kind of thing where I have to some of this slips here. My thought process, my goodness. We've got 30 minutes left in today's program. We'd love to have you call one more time, 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. And Lord Willem will be back on the other side of the break in two minutes. We'll see you then. to the word to stand on for life we're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll free 877-630-KSLR now here's pastor ron arbaugh welcome back to the second half of the show i'm sorry if i sounded a little scatterbrained but we had a caller call into the studio with something about facebook i am the biggest technical dummy ever um, about how to get the program on Facebook. I have no idea, but we've got people who are trying to look out. I didn't know you could do such a thing, and we're not on Facebook or other social media platforms. So that's what was spinning through my head. You know, when somebody asks a question, you have no idea to begin how to answer. You just think, I, I don't know, and my brain kind of fried. Here's an anonymous question. Should a pastor resign if he's caught in a sin? Uh, clearly he should sign, and I don't mean, uh, I mean, you know, pastor's sin, we're human beings, but uh, if it's if it's a, a, a moral failure, if it's having sex with somebody besides your wife, if it's stealing money, if it's yelling at people or, or, or abusing people, of course, not only should he resign, but if he refuses, he ought to be forced to resign. You know, this is a really important thing. Uh, you know, we as pastors, we we sometimes think more highly of ourselves than we ought. Um, and I hate to use it in this context, but sometimes I've heard him say, well, I'm God's anointed. Uh, anybody can be God's anointed. God spoke through a donkey in the Old Testament. Certainly can speak through us. But our power, the authority we have in declaring the Word of God comes from the relationship we have with Jesus Christ. You know, if I went out and sinned really, really big tomorrow, 
uh, I would still be able to teach the Bible. Uh, the Lord has taught me a whole bunch, and it's a gift that he's given me. His gifts and calling are irrevocable. But there would be no power behind what I was saying. I could say all the right things, but there would be no power because the relationship with God. It's sort of like um, um, having something that you're charging, you know, whether it's a, a razor or a telephone or something. Uh, you know, when you use it a long time, you don't keep recharging and it runs out of juice and pretty soon it has no value. Well, a pastor who's not close to Jesus has no value. He runs out of juice. And so the moment when we are caught in sin, we need to be men enough, godly enough to say, it's time for me to step out. Now, it's a hard thing for pastors to do. I hope and pray, and maybe you can pray for me, that I never have to find out how hard it is. Next to being Paula's husband, being the pastor here at Calvary Chapel of San Antonio, these wonderful people God has given me as the single greatest gift of my life, better than anything I ever could have imagined. And I don't want to do anything ever to jeopardize that. I don't want it to stand in front of the, the church that God has blessed me with. I don't want to stand in front of them and say, I can't be your pastor anymore because I messed up. But if I'm not with Jesus, I don't want to be in that pulpit. Now, I'm speaking, I think, you know, with a great relationship with Jesus and thinking, speaking by the Spirit of God. The problem is we get in our flesh, we try to hold on to things that we have no right to hold on to because they weren't ours in the first place. I have to remember, I'm just using me as an example. I haven't sinned, if anybody's worried, at, at least in, 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 in some way that would cause me to have to step down. But this isn't my church. This radio program. This was a gift from God. I, this wasn't my idea. All of it belongs to Jesus because every day I say that I'm his. When I'm no longer with him, I'm no longer of any value. An anonymous, I think a pastor should be the first to step down. I always tell my church that, you know, the, the sign of your spiritual maturity and the depth of your relationship with Jesus um, isn't indicated by, by not sinning. The depth of our relationship with Jesus and our own maturity is, is um, uh, indicated by what we do when we sin. And we who are pastors, we who teach the Word of God, we're the ones who are the most accountable to handle our own sin in a godly way. That is to repent. If we do things that disqualify us, it's a step down. Jesus doesn't need pastors. He allows us to be used. So I hope that helps. Thank you very much, Anonymous. Let's go to Austin now and talk with Linda on line one. Linda, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Hi, Pastor Ron. How are you today? I'm doing well, Linda. Thank you for calling. Well, I listen to you. If I'm in my car, I, I have you on my radio between 4 and 5 if I'm ever in my car, and I so enjoy <laughs> listening to you. Oh, thanks. Uh, my question is, I'm not even sure how to phrase it, but it has to do with the, um, in the Bible it says, as you're, the husband is the head of the household, uh, as such, uh, that the husband's supposed to be the head of the household. And I guess my question is, in my mind, I think that when the Bible was written and it said that, 
I'm assuming that they that the head of the household was also how do I say a, a man of God. My question is, my husband is not a believer, and I was just wondering if there's any I don't know differences or if I am thinking the wrong thing or if I should just follow the Bible the way it it says. And uh, I'll uh, listen to your answer on the radio. Okay, Linda, thank you. And keep praying for your husband. As you know, if you've been listening to the program in length of time, Paula prayed for me for 13 years uh, before God knocked some sense into my head and into my heart. So uh, I, I will be praying for you, Linda, because there is nothing more difficult than being unequally yoked in a, in a, in a, in a marriage. For somebody who loves the Lord, um, it, it just it, it's unfathomable to me. Uh, that that somebody wouldn't love my Jesus, and if that someone was the the man or the woman that we'd committed our lives to, that would just be more than I could bear. So I will be praying for you personally, Linda, and I don't say that lightly. So um, you will be being prayed for. A couple of things: the Lord doesn't say the Bible doesn't say that that He's the head of the household. We make that assumption. Uh, Paul, when he's writing to the Corinthians, he's talking about authority in the church. Uh, he says uh, that the, the head of Christ is God, the Father. Um, the head of man is Jesus, and the head of the woman is man. So you're supposed to submit to the spiritual authority over you. Um, by that I mean very simply that, that there has to be order. And this is, especially when you're married to an unbeliever, uh, this isn't as much about um, expecting spiritual leadership. You you can't expect spiritual leadership from an unbeliever. It's that simple. It's, it's impossible for an unbeliever to be uh, or to govern in a home in a godly way. So um, this is more about order. In fact, you can go to First Peter chapter three. Linda and um, uh, Peter talks very specifically about uh, how to deal a woman with married to an unbelieving man uh, and it's to win him over by your behavior without a word in other words without pounding on him um, by the by the, the the inner beauty of of the godly woman that you are but he's still the head of the household in terms of establishing order now there are limits to that we men especially, uh, carnal men or unbelieving men, uh, we like to think that makes us boss. That's to miss the whole point. Ephesians chapter 5, this whole process before wives submit to your husband starts out with submit to one another out of reverence or fear of God. So we who are godly men, at least I hope we who are godly men, understand that this doesn't make us the boss. In fact, this just makes us more accountable. So we're accountable to be men of prayer. We're accountable to be men of the word. We're accountable to be men who consider our partner in life, the one that we can't do what God's called us to do without. Uh, we're accountable to take our wives' views and her opinions and, most importantly, what she's hearing from the Lord as she reads the word of God, what she's hearing as she's led by the Spirit. Those are things that, that a wise leader takes um, into, into consideration. We take that counsel. For me and Paula, I know this is what you asked. I'll get to the other part of it in a minute, Linda. But uh, I don't do anything important without Paula's partnership. I almost said cooperation, but even that's not the right word. It's partnership. 
uh, when we're going to ordain somebody, Paula's my, my first board. She, she's who I go to and say, well, would you pray about this? And let me know what you think. Um, if we were ever going to move, and it doesn't look like we ever are, but if we were ever going to move, we wouldn't make a move without knowing that we were in it together because that's godly leadership. It doesn't make us boss. We don't get to dictate. Just as Jesus dictates to us but doesn't force us to do things, we can't do it. Now, in your case, Linda, you're the spiritual head of the house because you're the only one with the Spirit of God. But now what God is asking you to do is to let your husband be in a position where he sees this this beautiful, godly woman um, who, who makes his life better, who makes his life easier. In my case, I wanted the joy that Paula had. I could never figure out why she had it. And when it became clear to me that it was Jesus, the source of her joy, and I knew I didn't have that joy, well, then I wanted it, and that's when I got saved. But your husband cannot ask you to do things as a spiritual head or the governmental head of the household in your case. He can't ask you to do things that are ungodly. That's when you have to take a stand and stand firm with Jesus and for Jesus. He can't ask you to do perverse things. He can't ask you not to go to church. He can't ask you, uh, don't bring the Bible. I used to tell Paula, I don't want that Bible in my house. I don't want my kids exposed to it. She didn't listen to me. She had the Bible in the house all the time. So he can't ask you to do ungodly things. If if you want to go to church, be a part of the body, and he says, no, you've got to say, um, sweetheart, I love you, and I do my best to, 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 to follow your lead, but when it comes to obeying you or obeying God, I have to obey the Lord. And he says that I'm not to forsake the assembling together of the saints. I'm to be a, an active, vital part of a, of a local body. So that's what we're going to do. Linda, in our case, when I told Paula she couldn't go to church, if she wanted to spend any time with me, I told her she had to learn to play golf. Because that's what I did every Sunday. And uh, she learned to play golf. But you know what she did? She found a church that met on Fridays. And she became a part of that church, and she didn't miss. And she would go when I was at work, and she would take the kids. Why? Because that's what God says to do. So uh, this isn't the way God made things, but this is what happened when sin entered the world. And in your case, Linda, all you need to do is stay so close to Jesus that when your husband is being difficult and unbelievers always will, uh, Jesus is right there saying, I'm proud of you, Linda. I got you on this, Linda. You might one day want to call in when Paul is here and talk to her about it. She could give you a blow-by-blow of how difficult it was for her. And it was not easy because I didn't make it easy. But boy, what, what, what a wonderful work that God did. So, Linda, thanks for tuning in. Thanks for calling. And I hope that gives you a little bit of direction. Here's a question from Marv. He says, where in the Bible does it say that the high priest had a rope tied around his waist when he went into the Holy of Holies? Marv, you may be surprised to find out it doesn't say that anywhere. Uh, That's a story that gets passed around. I've communicated that story, and and when I communicate it, I, I hope I've done it every time, but when I communicate it, I say this is what Jewish tradition held. 
So we don't know for sure if it's true. We know that the high priest alone was able to go into the Holy of Holies one time a year on the Day of Atonement. And the story goes that when he would go in, they would tie uh, a belt with bells on it around his waist because uh, he would go in to make uh, an offering for his sins and an offering for the sins of the people. If he came out, everybody knew that the sins had been covered over for, for, for the year. Uh, and they could go into the new year. Um, but uh, the, the, the legend is that if, if he went in unworthily into the presence of the ark, uh, and died, nobody would dare go in to get him because they too would die, so they would pull him out by that rope. Now, it sounds plausible, but honestly, uh, it's nothing more than tradition or, or Jewish legend. Uh, and what we have to do is make sure if we communicate that, that, that we're not communicating Scripture, we don't know this for a fact, but... And uh, I, I think that's important. Uh, I, I've known too many pastors uh, who have said, heard things that sounded really good and um, um, come up with really great sermons on them and they can make all kinds of, of great applications. Uh, but the problem is we represent something as being the Word of God. It has to be the very Word and the very heart of God. And this is just something that we don't know for sure. You know, uh, we hear these same things, uh, Marv, uh, with uh, the, the legend surrounding Jesus' uh, folded burial cloth, the napkin that was around his head. Um, they say, well, in a Jewish culture, this is what the napkins represented. We, we just don't need to go there at all. Uh, the only application I make from Jesus folding his his uh, napkin before he left the tomb was it uh, I say, men, please note that Jesus was neat. We need to be clean. We need to be neat. Jesus didn't leave laundry anywhere. So the point is that, that if we don't know something is for sure true, we need to represent it that way for sure. So I hope that uh, answers your question. Three four zero ninety five eighty five. Let's go to Universal City and talk with Phyllis. Phyllis, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Oh no, Pastor Ron, can you take us in an area that I sometimes signal? I, I can hear you fine. Oh, good. How are you today? I'm doing well. I wish it was thirty degrees warmer, but other than that, I'm doing well. <laughs> I love the cold, Pastor Ron. <laughs> anyway. I hope you and Paula well. Appreciate you asking the question I have, which is so many times I think. But um, this one, uh, my heart was weighing heavy, and I got up to read my Bible, and I went straight to John 17 for some reason. And I know you've been over it before, but I want to clear up the. Um, it's, it's, it's like Jesus was praying for his disciples. Was he also praying for. His believers in this graph of uh, John 17. Yes, I can answer that. Uh, thank you, Phyllis. That's a good question. Uh, the first part of John 17, and this is what is often called the high priestly prayer. Uh, I, I've, I've said before, I always feel a little um, self-conscious reading the first part of this, especially because it's like we're eavesdropping in 
on a very private conversation between Jesus and his father uh, before he he goes away. He talks about um, um, he prays for them. He doesn't pray for the world, but for those you've given me. Uh, all I have is yours, and all you have is mine, and glory has come to me through them. But when he gets down later, in, and, and that's a very specific prayer about the twelve. Um, but then you get down to, um, I think it's about verse 18 or 19. Let me get to it. Uh, it's actually verse 20. He says, my prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. So if we look at the prayer um, um, with clarity, Phyllis, um, Jesus is praying. I, I, I take so much comfort in the things that he prayed for, uh, pray, praying for the ones that he cared for. It's easy to get lost in that, but we can't ever forget that in verse 20, he begins to pray for those of, those of us who come, in our case, some 2,000 years later, um, because he's because of the work that he accomplished on the cross. So um, you can take the promises and the principles out of the prayer just between him and his Father. Um, know that Jesus ever lives to intercede on our behalf. So he's, he's interceding for us along those same lines. Uh, we can take great comfort and great security in our walk. He didn't lose any of them. And the inference is that he won't lose any that the Father has given him. That's you and me, Phyllis. But um, when he goes down again to verse 20, he makes it clear that the rest of this chapter, he's praying for us. And that prayer can be so personal and so effective. Um, he prays for unity. Uh, he prays that we would be filled with the Spirit. Um, he wants us to be one as Jesus and the Father are one. Um, these are really, really important. And then eventually, he prays that we would be with him where he is, that we would see his glory in all of its fullness. So yeah, those are great promises, Phyllis, and they're great promises that are available to, or, or really prayers that are, are um, effective, efficacious for all of us. So I hope that helps, Phyllis. Thank you. That's a great question. Here is... Okay, here's here's to the caller. Let me give this. Now, this is a technical dummy who's trying to be technical here. Uh, to the caller asking about hearing us on Facebook, uh, it says, yes, you can broadcast our show live. Go to am630theword.com, look at the type, top right corner of the page, and click Listen Now, and that's it. So I hope that answers your question and how you would... Listen on Facebook? I don't know. But um, you can also tell people just to go to the KSLR uh, website and hit the Listen Live button there. Uh, all over the country, people can can hear, and we get people that listen uh, all over the different parts of the country and call in. So, uh, so now, evidently, I can be heard on Facebook Live. Pretty cool. 340, and I always tell people, I'm not on Facebook. I'm, not, I'm never going to go on Facebook. And now I guess I'm going to be on Facebook. Not me personally. Nobody needs to know what's going on in my life, but the show. More people can listen, the better. Here's a question from Patrick. Uh, I've heard you say that the Bible is the final authority in matters of church and life. While some Christians believe that church tradition is just as important, which is true? Um, the answer is there can only be one authority. 
See, here's the problem, Patrick, with church tradition. And this is the one thing that religious people simply refuse to look at critically or logically. If the Word of God, if the Bible is really God's Word, and something in church tradition conflicts with that, or is inconsistent with that, then the Bible trumps the church tradition, and the church tradition is false. Just because people have been doing something for a long time doesn't give it any credibility. I get these questions about church history. How important is it to learn church history? The more you study church history, the more you understand just how messed up people were. Bad doctrine, bad interpretation has been with us from the very beginning. As, as early as the book of Acts, they were bringing heresies into the church. As early as John's epistles, and particularly 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, uh, Gnosticism was coming into the church, and they were challenging uh, not the deity of Christ. They, they, everybody understood he was God. They were questioning the humanity of Christ. Now it's just the opposite. 2,000 years later, we've come a long way, haven't we? N- nobody questioned Jesus was a real person. Historically, it's impossible to deny. But what's debated now is, well, he, he was a real person, but he wasn't God. So it's just the opposite of the early church heresies. So if you don't have a final authority, then you have no authority at all, Patrick. And so I'm going to tell you that what's true is what I've said in the past. The Bible has to be the final authority on doctrine. It has to be the final authority on life, the decisions we make. And it has to be the final authority on the way we function in the church. Because if that is not true, we have no authority. And I realize that these churches, the Roman Catholic Church, the Lutheran Church, the uh, Anglican Church, the Episcopal Church, uh, the United Methodist Church, all these others, well, well, no, 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 the Bible. Well, the problem is they threw the Bible out a long time ago. And they interpret it through the lens of what church tradition tells them it meant. But you don't have to be brilliant to look and say the Bible says flee from sexual immorality. That's what it means. That doesn't have to be interpreted. The passage of Scripture that say it is God's will that, and then you fill in the blank. We don't have to interpret those things. All we have to do is read them and do them. And the Bible, Patrick, if it's not the authority, I'll say it one more time, we have no authority that's trustworthy. We have nothing at all that we can really depend on. Paul says over and over to be immovable, to be steadfast, for the faith once and for all delivered to the saints. All those things, they clung, Acts chapter 2, to the apostles' doctrine. That's our Bible, what we have. So if that's not the authority, we have no authority, and if we have no authority... I personally don't believe there's a God. It's very, very, very important that we understand all of that. Are we down to one minute, really? Wow. Boy, that time went fast. Hey, thank you for tuning in. Linda, I'll be praying for you, Phyllis. Thanks for the call. You've been listening to The Word to Stand On for Life. Remember, tomorrow, Paula will be live in studio with me on the date day edition of the program. Uh, Thanks for tuning in. I appreciate it more than you know. And apparently now you can tune in on Facebook Live. You've been listening to the Word to Stand Up for Life. May the Lord bless you and keep you. I'll be back, Lord willing, tomorrow with beautiful Paula. See you then. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapel's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. 
The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4. And Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Oh,